we are always meeting and gathering like this in need of God and what only he can do for us. And that is certainly true as we look to the Bible. He is faithful. He loves us. We are his people called by his name. He is always faithful and good to help us and meet us in our need. So let's go to him now and ask him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you as your people, as your sons and daughters, those who have been adopted into your family. We come not on the basis of our own strength or righteousness. We come covered in the blood of your son and standing dressed in his righteousness alone. We thank you for giving us your word to guide us in our lives. And more than anything, we thank you for giving us your word that we might see and know Christ. So we pray quite simply for our time now that as we look to the scriptures, that we would see and behold the Lord Jesus. And that as we do so, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and sustained in the faith. We pray that we would see you as you are. We pray that we would see ourselves rightly. We ask that you would use all of these things to teach us and continue to conform us into the image of your son. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm not sure how many headlines you've read this week. I'm thinking in particular about the tragic shootings that occurred in Atlanta. And then I'm also thinking about the reactions to it that were primarily all over social media, even reactions to the shootings in Atlanta on the part of Christians, Christians interacting with one another over what went on there and perhaps what produced it. Whether you're acquainted with all of this or not, whether you spent much time on Twitter looking at these things this week or not, it doesn't really matter. This much is clear, that we are sinful and that we are needy. We are desperate for grace and for mercy. We are, frankly, a mess. And by we, I mean the church. We all commit countless sins on a daily and weekly basis many of which, most of which, we're not even aware of. With respect to the sins that we are aware of, it's an ever-constant battle. We don't want to do evil, but we find ourselves often doing it. We want to do good, but we often find ourselves not doing that. We are as John Newton has said, riddles unto ourselves and heaps of inconsistence. On top of all of this, we lack self-awareness, though we think that we have it. Pretty much every human being thinks that he or she is self-aware. That's why the joke goes something like this, that if you ask a room full of people, who among you is self-aware? The ones that you know for sure are not are the hands that go up. People who think that they know themselves in reality don't know themselves like they think they do. And that is true for all of us. We don't know ourselves the way we think that we do. We tend to think too highly 
of ourselves. Even in the church, where we have an understanding of a sinful nature, our corrupt nature in Adam, we still think that we are better than we are. We tend to overestimate our own virtue. And we often forget that in many cases, the virtue that we do have is simply an absence of temptation. Take, for example, the events of this week, just as a snapshot of how we struggle. Terrible things happen in which human beings made in God's image lose their lives. And we respond in all kinds of ways, very few of them any good at all. Rather than weeping with those who weep, rather than grieving the loss of human life, rather than lamenting the wreckage that sin has caused, rather than directing our anger at sin and sins, rather than thoughtfully and carefully pointing out error, we misdirect our indignation. We speak out of our own misguided rage. We start looking for someone or some ideology to blame. And interestingly, the people and the ideas that are at fault are never found within our own tribe. We throw accusations in every direction. We speak in inflammatory ways and feel justified doing so. We leverage tragedy for our own agenda. The whole thing, friends, frankly, is like a food fight amongst children. All the while, we go on thinking ourselves incapable of such vile and wicked things, forgetting that all of us, ordinary people as we are, are capable of extraordinary evil. Such is our condition. God help us. If all of this feels heavy, that's appropriate. It should. If all of this prompts big questions in your mind, good. It should. So, how then, in light of all of this, how then shall we live? What should we do? And, perhaps most pointedly, what hope is there for people such as us? Let's look to the Bible now. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be spending more time this morning in the wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian Christians. We are nearing the end of this wonderful letter. We're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, that's wonderful. You'll be helped by following along with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that at all. We will have the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you can follow along that way. Now that we've had just a moment to turn, let's listen now to God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, out of reverence 
for Christ. Amen. We thank God for his word. These seven verses, friends, can be summarized as follows. Live carefully and thoughtfully, not foolishly. Be filled with the Spirit, encouraging one another in Christ as you gather together. And then submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That brief summary will serve as an outline for the message, which will consist of three points today. And then we will conclude our time by reflecting for a moment on the main ways we encourage one another in the church. So we will begin with point number one. Live carefully and thoughtfully, not foolishly. Point one, live carefully and thoughtfully, not foolishly. Put your eyes back on verse 15. Paul tells us to look carefully then how we walk. Look carefully then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise people. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And therefore, don't be foolish. There again is that exhortation. Don't be foolish. Don't be unwise. But understand, rather, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Let's unpack these things together. The apostle is exhorting us to live thoughtful lives, to live lives of awareness, lives of even intentionality. Why? He says, because the days are evil. We do need to live lives that are thoughtful, lives that are intentional, lives where we are aware of not only ourselves, but the world around us, because the world is fallen and so are we. Wisdom does not come naturally to us. On the other hand, foolishness is as natural as breathing. But we need to be taught wisdom. We need to learn it. We don't naturally, as fallen human beings, pursue good either. But rather we are inclined toward evil in our fallen flesh. In some cases, we need to be taught what is good because we legitimately don't know. And in many cases, we know what is good, but we just don't do it. We find ourselves unable to do it. Or we find that our flesh craves something else. And our flesh can be strong. Read Romans 7. The battle is intense. To live a life that is characterized by wisdom and not foolishness, to live a life that is thoughtful means that we can't just do what we want to do all the time. That kind of living, to just do whatever you feel like doing, is living based upon instinct, not anything more thoughtful than We can't just not do what we don't feel like doing all the time. Deep down, we know these things. We know that it would lead to disaster. If I just do whatever I want or don't do whatever I don't feel like doing, and that's just how I live my life. But the world does not help us in this at all. The religion of our day goes something like this. Look inside yourself. Determine who you are. Go about being that person and don't let anybody stop you. That, that religion, that way of thinking, by the way, is a great way to destroy everyone who is close to you. It's a great way to destroy everyone that you say you care about. 
the world is going headlong after everything that feels good, after everything that is pleasurable and comfortable. And so the world justifies us in our pursuit of our own pleasure, and the world justifies us in the pursuit of our own agenda. But Paul exhorts us to something different. He says, don't be unwise, don't be foolish, don't just thoughtlessly live doing what you just feel like doing all the time. Don't just get drunk, even. Drunkenness, we understand, is sin. And the point of the apostle here is that it leads to reckless living. It leads to this thoughtless, reckless kind of life that tears other people to pieces. That's what is meant by the phrase rendered, for that is debauchery in our verse 18. Drunkenness is exemplary of the abuse of one of God's good gifts, true, and it is also exemplary of foolishness and only leads to recklessness. Don't live like that, says the apostle. Rather, be wise. Instead, make the best use of the time. Understand, he says in verse 17, what the will of the Lord is. Now, on this, this understanding what the will of the Lord is. There's a couple of comments here. If you've spent any time in the church, or if you've spent much time at all around Christians, you will know that Christians tend to obsess over what the will of God is. Many people live their lives, and you talk to them, How, what are you doing? How are you doing? How's your Christian life? Well, I'm just trying to discern God's will. Just trying to figure out what the Lord has for me. And it's good for us to talk to one another in very plain ways and encourage each other that we will understand what the will of the Lord is from his word or nowhere. We will understand what the will of the Lord is from his word because in his word he has revealed to us not only his will for us, but he has revealed to us what wisdom is in his word. He has revealed to us what the best use of the time is in his word. And so, because God has given us his word, he's given us the church, we can set one another free and say, brother, sister, you know, God's will for your life in part is to stop obsessing over God's will for your life. Look to his word. The Christian life is unfathomably deep, but it is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. And we will understand these things and what is good for us from God's word, and he has been so kind as to tell us what these things are. For our purposes this morning regarding God's will and the best use of the time, just consider some of the things that the Apostle Paul has written in this letter. The letter to the Ephesians all begins with what God has done for us in Christ. Three chapters worth of that glorious stuff. It's quite clear that part of God's will for us is that we would know who He is, that He is gracious and merciful towards sinners, that in his holiness and righteousness, he, through the work of his son, has reconciled sinners to himself. And that this has always been his plan, and that we are safe and secure because of Christ and what he has accomplished in our place. It starts there. God's will for us is that we would know that and be grounded in it. But then beyond that, there is wonderful stuff in the letter to the Ephesians. We are to live lives of humility. We're to walk humbly before our God and with each other. 
We are to be gentle in our interactions with others. We are to be patient with one another, bearing with one another in love. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to live life together, the apostle says, in the church. He reminds us of our need for pastors and teachers, but he also reminds us of our need of one another. We grow together, says Paul. This is the will of God for you. Together, in the church, with your brothers and sisters, you grow. Together, in the church, with your brothers and sisters, you're sustained. Together, with your brothers and sisters, in the church, you are grounded in the truth. We are built up in love together. This is God's will for us. Paul also tells us, reminds us, that we are not who we used to be. We have a new life now. And so we live accordingly. Given that we have a new life and a new identity, we flee from the sin that used to characterize us. Given that we have a new life and a new identity, we live with one another in love, seeking to build one another up, not tear others down. We engage in honest labor. We are generous with one another. We put away anger and wrath and bitterness and malice. We are kind to one another. We're tenderhearted. We forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. We don't engage in sensuality and works of darkness, but rather we expose works of darkness with God's law so that people might be driven to Christ who is their only hope for salvation. Brothers and sisters, we give ourselves to these things. This is God's will for us and in so doing, giving ourselves to that stuff, we make the best use of the time. We're not living recklessly and foolishly. We are living wisely in accord with what the apostle writes here. So point number one, do not live foolishly and unwisely, but live a life of intentionality and wisdom as we have just considered. Point number two, be filled with the Spirit, encouraging one another in Christ as you gather together. Point two, be filled with the Spirit, encouraging one another in Christ as you gather together together. Put your eyes on the second half of verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit, says Paul, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, as opposed to being drunk, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Rather than to be controlled by things of this world, we are to be filled with the very Spirit of God. And then he adds three participial phrases. There's something for all the English majors in the room or for all the people that enjoyed English class. He adds three participial phrases that modify being filled in the Spirit. You can look at them. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
some observations about those things. All of these, those phrases that Paul uses to modify being filled with the Spirit, to help us understand how that manifests itself, all of those phrases have a very corporate dimension to them, do they not? You can look at the text and see it. It's very clear. Not only is Paul writing this entire letter to a congregation of believers, not only are all of the you's that you see in your English, so English is tough sometimes because you could be either singular or plural. The you's that you're looking at on your page are all plural. So not only is all that true, Paul now is going to begin to explain the manifestations of being filled with the Spirit with one another language. It is clear that it is a very corporate thing. You realize, because you're thoughtful and you're observing what we've been thinking about and you're observing the text here in Ephesians as we've been making our way through it, you realize that everything Paul has been writing is corporate in nature. But more pointedly, as he shifted in chapter 4 to consider how we live together in the church, all of this is about us together. Humility. Just some of those things that he begins chapter 4 with, some of the things that I was even considering just a moment ago that we were thinking about together. Humility is absolutely a relational thing. We walk and live in humility, not only before God, but with one another. Patience. Patience means that I'm interacting with a group of other people that I am being patient with. He tells us to bear with one another in love. He tells us, the apostle does, to pursue unity. He speaks and writes about how much we need the church and how we grow together. All that new life stuff was corporate in nature. All the instructions that Paul gave in the latter part of chapter 4 are one another instructions or don't let these things be true among you kind of instructions. It's congregational. It's corporate in nature. So Paul has not. This is important because I think that many of us, and certainly just in the American church more generally, many of us have a notion that to be filled with the Spirit is something that only has to do with me and God. It's a very just kind of personal, private thing. And it's very clear that Paul, in all of that he's writing, is writing in a corporate dynamic, in a corporate way, and has not now suddenly just flipped the script to write in a private, spiritual life kind of way. So far from being filled with the Spirit, being some private, spiritual pursuit that I do by myself, being filled with the Spirit primarily manifests itself when I'm with the saints. It is not something that will primarily manifest itself when I am alone. It's important that we would see that our being filled with the Spirit becomes most obvious and manifests itself most pointedly when we gather together in a gathering even like this to encourage one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, ink is spilled on the corporate nature of the ministry of the Word of Christ, as well as the corporate nature and significance of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But here, it's very clear that Paul's emphasis is on corporate singing and on corporate prayer. I mean, you can look at the text just like I can. 
Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's that corporate song piece. And then giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we can do that in song, but I think the emphasis is clearly we're praying to the Lord corporately together. Corporate singing, friends, I don't know about you, but it is one of the more encouraging things that we get to do every week together. To come and be in a room with other people who believe as we do, who have been brought from death to life, who have cast themselves upon the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, and we sing those great truths together. Our hearts, now we feel all kinds of ways. We might not feel it every Sunday, but in a general sense, our hearts are stirred. We are encouraged as we hear our brothers and sisters sing these things at the top of their lungs. And there's a reason why. I mean, when we sing together, we leave the lights on so that we can see each other. We try not to overwhelm the room with sound so that we can hear each other so that we might be encouraged in the Lord as we sing together. It is incredibly encouraging as well to be able to come to God together in prayer, to offer thanksgiving to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Private prayer is wonderful and it's encouraging and there is something about praying with the saints as we together bring not only our requests to God, but we bring our praise and our thanksgiving to him as well. As far as even this thanksgiving portion, this verse 20 in particular, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we would understand what even happens in corporate worship. We come, as we often say, in need, not strength. We come to be ministered to by God. We come to cast ourselves upon Him completely. We come to have Him do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then what we do as God ministers to us, we respond to that. And how do we respond? We respond with praise and thanksgiving. This is how corporate worship works. There is nothing more significant, friends, in our lives than gathering together for corporate worship. Now, that sounds crazy to say in an American church context where we think that the real stuff of the Christian life happens when we're alone. Clearly in the New Testament, as God has revealed it to us, the most important stuff of the Christian life happens when we are together and we will grow together and be conformed together into the image of Christ. God uses the gatherings of his people uniquely. He has promised to grow and sustain and bless us through being together. Assembling for corporate worship is a significant piece of what the Lord's will is for us. If we're thinking in those terms, a la verse 17, seeking to understand what the will of the Lord is, a piece of it is that we do things like this regularly. He has ordained this for our good. He has ordained it because we need it. And when we gather together, there is an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. All that by way of point two, we now make our way to point number three. Point three, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You can see that in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It was a very creative heading on my part. You're welcome for that. Now, in the original, it's good that we would know this. Verse 21 is the beginning of a new paragraph. So it's very clear that Paul is transitioning in his thought. So in our English translations, it's kind of, Sandwich there with verse 20, it's okay. 
It'd be more helpful, I think, if it was actually put with verse 22. We're going to come back next week to look at verses 522 through 6-9. And this heading, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is going to drive the entire message next Sunday. Because that is the banner over which that large portion of Scripture falls. We will understand the wives and husbands' peace and the children and parents' peace and the slaves' and masters' language all under the banner of that mutual submission to one another in Christ. And so, this point today is going to be very brief. For our purposes this morning, it will suffice to say that God has so knitted us together in Christ that mutual submission to one another is the order of the day. We love and serve one another in the church. We lay down our own agenda and we pursue the good of other people. We consider others as more significant than ourselves. We seek to humbly live and walk together, not thinking too well of ourselves and not looking down on others. And then we give of ourselves for the good of the saints. Thus ends point three. And everybody said, amen. That's the shortest point, brother, that you've ever made. I've done that. I've kept that brief in part because I want us to spend some time concluding the message this morning. This passage, Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, is about living together in wisdom and gratitude. And it's about doing those things, living in wisdom and gratitude as we encourage one another in Christ. And so I want us to think for the rest of our time together about the main ways that we encourage one another in the church. The main ways. Now I'm using that on purpose. This is far from exhaustive. There are plenty of other wonderful things that we can find in the scriptures that we do for each other, that we say to each other, that bring encouragement. But these are primary. If we don't encourage one another with these things, then anything else that we do get right is an accident. Let's think together. Think back to the introduction, the introduction of this sermon about how we really do sin in countless ways, most of which we are not aware of. You realize the greatest commandment, according to our Lord Jesus, as he summarized the law, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we look at that, and if we have any awareness about ourselves at all, if our conscience is working at all, We look at that and say, well, I have quite literally failed to do that my entire life. I have not really done that. To love God with everything I am, I've never done that. Then the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we think, I've blown that one too. We live lives where we are never, I mean, never, meeting the standard that God has for us. We are never keeping the law at the level of thought and desire and motivation and affection and deed. We have a corrupt nature. Our flesh craves things that are wrong. We battle against it all the time and thereby, even when we're not aware of it, we are so often sinning. 
As I said earlier too, we lack awareness of ourselves to rightly see the ways that we struggle and the ways that we sin and we tend to give ourselves way too much credit. We think that we're doing better than we are and I think that is true of every single person in this room, myself included. We bicker and we accuse others. We misdirect our anger all the time. We don't feels, feel excuse me, the way that we should, often. And then these kind of final statements as I paint this relatively grim picture of us. Friends, when it comes to our righteousness, we do not have nearly as much as we think. And when it comes to our sin, we are far worse than we think. And so, friend, brother, or sister, I trust that if you have not had many moments like this already in your life, you will have moments where that becomes painfully obvious to you that you are not as righteous as you think and that you are far more sinful than you think. It will land on you, it lands on us like a literal ton of bricks, crushes us. When we see ourselves and we see the depth and greatness of our sin and our real lack of righteousness, when that happens for us, if we are not equipped to process what in the world is going on, if we are not equipped to process what's going on in our minds and in our hearts in those times, we will find ourselves in utter despair. We'll conclude one of several things, none of them good. We'll think, well, one, either, if everything I'm hearing about Christianity, about how I should be doing is true, then one of two things, either Christianity is a joke because my life is a mess, or two, maybe Christianity is legit, but I'm not. It didn't work for me. And I'm out. Or maybe lastly, we conclude that we are one of those people who will live our lives striving to be faithful to Christ only to have him tell us at the end of it all, I never knew you. And we live in constant despair and anxiety. So, one way that we help each other in the church is to remind one another that we are real and wretched sinners. We remind one another that we are real and wretched sinners. And you're thinking, brother, what in the world kind of encouragement is that? Track with me. Track with me. So in the church, we don't allow one another to fall into the delusion that we are only like middling and trifling sinners. We don't allow a culture to develop where we're only conscious of small and insignificant faults and frailties. We don't allow a culture to develop where we see ourselves as some kind of like half-baked sinners. For those who might think that way, we invite them in. We invite them to come join the number of real, great hard-boiled sinners here at CBC. See, the reason we encourage one another by reminding one another of what we are on our own 
is because we are real sinners and wretched ones, and Christ is a real Savior for such as us. This is what we say. To the person who lacks awareness of the depth of his sin, we effectively say, no, 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 no. You will not belittle Christ like that. Don't you make him small as though he can only rid us of little, hypothetical, and childish sins? Because if that's the case, if he can only rid us of those kinds of sins, he is of no help to people like us. But as it stands, friend, Jesus is the Savior and the Redeemer of those who have committed great, grievous, and damnable sins. What a Savior He is. Our sins, they are many, and they are great, but His mercy is more. So we remind each other of the kind of sinners we are. But secondly, we encourage one another and we help each other in doing the following. We exhort each other to despair of our own righteousness and trust in Christ alone. We exhort each other to despair of our own righteousness and trust in Christ alone. So we speak to each other in ways that would facilitate this. Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend of his that was despairing of his salvation, really wrestling with his sin. And Luther begins the letter this way. He says, tell me, have you come to loathe your own righteousness? Have you come to loathe your own righteousness? And do you desire to rejoice in the righteousness of Christ that he has given to you? We talk this way, friends, because this is how the scriptures are written. This kind of language that we would encourage one another in the Lord Jesus Christ by actually exhorting each other to despair of our own righteousness is right out of Philippians 3 where Paul writes, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul says, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, when he says he's lost all things, certainly when he's talking about losing stuff, he has in mind all these things that he's just been writing about. I don't think he's talking about his material possessions. He's talking about literally his virtue. All of these things about him that are meritorious. He says all of that stuff that I've been listing, I have suffered the loss of all of it and I count it as rubbish, as trash. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
See, friends, as we think about living a life in the church together, where we give thanks to God in all things, where we encourage one another in Christ in all things, we have to talk this way. People who know the depth of their corruption and thereby understand something of what Christ has accomplished for them are grateful and thankful people. It is so easy to think well of ourselves. And hear me, this is especially true in those of us who strive to fight sin, for those of us who strive to be righteous and godly, for those of us who have lives that are relatively put together. It is so easy to think well of ourselves. And where this can end is that we search for something good in us, something that might give us confidence that will be found legitimate before God. We search for something in ourselves that might convince us that we are adequately adorned with good and meritorious deeds. And all of this is a fool's errand because it's impossible. We won't find what we're looking for if we look within. It can't be done. And in all of this, what ends up happening is that we forget the perfect righteousness of God that is given to us in Christ. And so we exhort one another. Brother, sister, continue to learn Christ. Continue to learn Christ and Him crucified. Continue to learn of the depth of your ruin. Continue to learn of the extravagant work of Jesus in your place. Learn to sing and pray and cry out with praises to Christ for what He's done for you. And learn to despair utterly of your own works. We exhort one another, beware of a pursuit of righteousness that would lead you to ever think that you're no longer a sinner because Christ only came for sinners. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you're a decent sinner because Christ only came for the worst of us. He came for sinners from the bad to the worst because there are no other kind. We must be driven to despair of our own righteousness if we are ever going to be led to the only hope that sinners like us could ever have. And then this. We will never have true and lasting peace. Never. Until we despair of our own righteousness and trust only in Christ's righteousness. This is what we need. And it's what sustains us. It's what strengthens us. It's also what humbles us. It's what encourages us. And it's what comforts us. Because it is only in Christ that we have hope. We rejoice together and give thanks to God through Jesus Christ together because Jesus has made our sins his and died for them. And because he has made his righteousness ours. All by grace, not merit, by faith and not works. And so we have peace. As the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and acknowledge our need of you. We need you just as much now as before the sermon started. We pray that you would take your word and the truth contained in it and drive it deeply into our hearts and minds. We pray that we would rightly despair of our own righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. And that as we do that, that we would be filled with peace and hope and confidence and joy and gratitude. And that we would live lives of love and good works toward our neighbor. We pray for your continued grace upon us, for your continued ministry in this place as we will come to your table in just a moment. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have accomplished in our place. May we cast ourselves completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ now and always, and we pray these things in his name.